This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 10, Robot Carnival, Attractions for Automatons. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week, we have the return of Rara Granger. Yo, what up, it me? And this week, we are going to be talking about Robot Carnival, the film from 1987. But this week, we're going to do something a little different, as hinted at in the preview from last episode. What we're going to do this time is we're going to do a podcast in the style of Cinema Swirl. For those who have never heard of Cinema Swirl, it is a podcast hosted by Kevin Mann of the Attitude Era podcast and How To Wrestling. And what he does is that he sits down with his friend Sam Chaplin, and together they watch a lot of dem films together mostly older movies, and they have a little preliminary chat about it, then they go and watch the movie, and then they come back and they give their thoughts on it, and that's what we're gonna do here. Mm-hmm. So, Rara, Robot Carnival. Yeah. I, I assume you first heard of this from me, is that correct? Yeah, I had never heard of this before. Most fans haven't because it's an older thing, and you know how I feel about modern fans thumbing their nose at the idea of watching older (laughs) anime well you know me i'm not a you know i don't snub my nose up at older anime i'm a a big fan of the older stuff as well so hey me too i'm i am the most vocal person out there you will hear for older anime Mm. in fact i would love to host a panel on a beginner's guide to classic anime Absolutely. I feel like that would be a fantastic panel. Like, I feel like a lot of um, classic anime gets overlooked, and I feel like, you know, I might well be entering into another one of those today with uh, Discovering Robot Carnival. So, with that title, Robot Carnival, like, what are you Hmm. expecting out of this movie? So, I didn't know what to expect just from the title. From the original title, I expected something a little bit, I don't know, I kind of expected Mecha. I kind of expected that. Uh, it's come round to sort of, it gave me these visions of just like uh, Mecca, but in a uh, lighter, a lighter mood, as it were. Something that takes the sort of uh, stylings of something like Gundam or Gurren Lagann and, you know, does something a bit more kooky and crazy with it, a la Toradora. You know, something a bit crazier and out there. But then you sent me the posters. <laughs> Yeah, like you were expecting just from that title that it was going to be something like, say, oh, I don't know, a Gona Guy robot show like Mazinger yeah. Z or Getter Robo. Yeah, absolutely. Getter Robo was definitely something that came up. But yeah, I sent you the poster and then what are your thoughts? Like, what what, are, what do you look at it now? I'm now getting major, like, to compare it to something much more modern, getting major, like, Love, Death and Robots ideas from this. Like, again, in a much sort of lighter 
framing a much more cheerful style it is here are several short stories done by different people on the central theme of rabbits and you know i could talk for days on end about rabbits they're an important part of my damn life well, if you guys don't know Rara, she herself is a roboteer and has quite a bit of experience in the field of robot combat. So you think there's maybe going to be a robot fighter too in this? Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm getting some of the vibes from the sm- like the smaller, um, almost lockets that we're seeing sort of on the outside of the frame here. Each one looks very different. Although I can't help but feel uh, third down on the left is giving me a really big Fist of the North Star vibes. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find out. He looks more like Judao Ashta from Double Zeta Gundam, like a older okay, version of Judao yeah. Ashta. Yeah, no, I can get that. And bottom right's giving me sort of discount JoJo vibes. <laughs> he uh, looks like he's wearing the armor of Iria from Iria Zerum. Yeah, and I don't know what to expect from bottom left, but I'm pretty sure at least one of these will probably involve some form of combat. I mean, second up on the right definitely looks like we're getting some combat from Mr angry and or taking a tricky shit <laughs> but yeah I, i'm looking forward to seeing the different stories that we're gonna get i mean it advertises itself as nine animators one vision so i'm looking forward to seeing whether that's uh nine different animators all on one story or like i said something more like love death and robots where you get all these little stories tied together it's uh interesting you mention love and death plus robots and we'll talk about that comparison in the aftermath but mm. there's two posters for this and the one uh that we're talking about with the lockets is one featuring two robots waltzing together in the middle of what looks like a mirror with a wreath on it I don't know Mm. what you call those little baubles on the end, but each one contains a different image of something that appears in the film. And the other one, of course, we got to talk about that other poster that has the tagline on it. The huge arena-ish? Like, what do you think that's going to be? I want that to be Thunderdome, but for robots. Please let that be Thunderdome, but for robots. I want to watch that. (laughs) (laughs) And we already have that. It's called Robot Fighting League, and it was kind of (laughs) crap. (laughs) well maybe battlebots is kind of like thunderdome but for robots Eh, battlebots is too high class to be a thunderdome (laughs) we need a thunderdome robot combat show that's what we need well there's always clash bots Uh, uh, (laughs) that doesn't count that does not count kfc bots from this one i'm getting sort of although i am concerned that there appears to be an Imperial Space Marine from the 40k universe lodged in there with all the other stuff at the front. So, uh, no idea what he's doing there other than fighting for the Emperor. It's like a bunch of destroyed robots or something. You think that's like the scrap heap? Maybe. that. I mean, we're getting this sort of buildy vibe from like, yeah, maybe it's sort of like a scrap yard or a cycle yard. But again, it's, it's a really cool framed art piece. Like, that's something I'd want on my wall. I mean, if I like the show, I might go and see if there's a town wall scroll for this poster because it's so pretty. Oh, both posters are phenomenal. I I love both. If Otaku Joes sold them, I'd buy them in a heartbeat. But yeah, so I'm I'm not actually quite sure what to expect. Like I said, love Death and Robots vibes, but also really cheerful vibes from it. I'm not quite sure if we'll see much combat. I mean, the second poster definitely alludes to that more than the first one, but maybe we're just going to get nine different little mini stories, which I'd be fine with. I like the idea. You think uh, the overall tone's going to be cheerful or something? I'm getting that vibe from the first poster, and I mean, I'm not getting a massively, like, depressing vibe from the second one, so sure, I'll put, I'll put my money on that. 
Alrighty, uh, does the art style look familiar to you? Because you there's mentioned... There's a few familiar... Yeah, there's definitely a few familiar hints. I'm not quite sure, unfortunately, uh, we're recording this uh, quite late UK time, and also after a very long day of work for myself. So my brain is not entirely functioning, but I definitely recognize some of these art styles. I'm really cu- like curious to see if they're from anything that I've watched before. Unfortunately, the post is a bit too low quality for me to pick out the names that appear to be underneath each locket, but... I can't find a higher quality image, and the one that is high quality kind of spoils uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Ah, fair. Okay. But In which case, yeah, we can just sort of play it off as like, oh, it's, it'll be a surprise to you, and we'll work it out at the end. So, uh, do you have any other thoughts going into the movie on what you can expect, or what you hope I to thought... see? I've got some pretty high expectations of this. This uh, seems like the sort of thing that I would actively seek out and look for myself, which is quite nice. All right. So with all of that out of the way, we've gotten our preliminary thoughts on what we're going to expect going in. And so we are going to take a quick break. We are going to go and do a cinema swirl. I mean, watch the movie. And then we'll come back with our thoughts afterward. So grab a Dr. Pepper and sit in your comfy chair, because we're about to punch our ticket to the Robot Carnival. And we're back from our little day at the Robot Carnival. And all I have to ask is, Rara, what did you think? That was a super enjoyable fucking movie. I loved every moment of it. It was nothing like I expected. It was zany and kooky and wonderful and sad and happy and just hilarious. It covered all the bases and it it genuinely was like more than I could have imagined. It was super great. Well, you said that it was a a series of stories earlier. I tried my best to hide it from you, but this is an anthology movie. Yeah, I mean, all of them have the generic theme of there are robots here. And they all do something beautifully different with it, from giant samurai mecha fights to a girl who is sad, so dates a robot who turns out to be. <laughs> well, I think we'll uh, do our best to try and like cover each segment individually, because mm-hmm. that's what they do on cinemas, where like they recap the movie. And sure. I don't feel any guilt in spoiling what is perhaps one of my favorite anime movies. It may even make my top five if I ever did like a top 20 favorite anime movies or so. But a little background on Robot Carnival. It came out in 1987 by another pushpin planning and was directed or headed up by Katsuhiro Otomo. Does that name ring any bells? Yeah, I've definitely heard it before. Well, Katsuhiro Otomo is mostly known for one thing and one thing only, and that is he was the director for Akira. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, fantastic anime. He's since done other projects since, like in both manga, anime, and live action, but everybody always knows him for Akira. But he did several other anthology films. He did uh, Mane Mane Labyrinth Tales, a.k.a. Neo Tokyo, And he also did the anime you were a part of. He directed Memories. Oh, yeah. Oh, sweet. Okay. So uh, let's break down this movie segment by segment. And we start off with the opening sequence. This was helmed by Katsuhiro Otomo and Akatsuko Fukushima. Fukushima doesn't really have too many notable credits outside of this. 
but she's since gone on to be a key animator on quite a few projects. So, Rara, how does Robot Carnival open? It opens with a little far boy, and he finds a poster for the Robot Carnival, and then he runs to tell everyone in their strange not language of squeaks and grunts. I said, and I, then I, a giant fuck off. <laughs> super fucking complex on treads rocks up and crushes and destroys the town to a beautiful fanfare and exploding ballerinas yeah we uh we talked about the posters before but the poster that features the tagline nine animators one vision that giant title you see on the poster that's actually in the movie Yep, it I, is just a big-ass fucking robot itself. I love it when they use the title of a movie in a creative way. I think this has to be the single most creative use of a film's title ever. That's really super... It was really original. I loved the fact that, like, it felt like an extended opening credits, and then you realize, oh, no, this is its own little segment. And what I love about it is how they build the dread of the robot carnival. Like, you don't know what it is. It just appears as this big shadow. And when you slowly see it come out, you're like, oh, there's the movie. Well, the thing is as well, my reactions were, oh, that's really neat. That's super cool. Oh, it's fucking killing everyone. <laughs> yeah, and as Rayra said, the title just goes on on treads it just rolls over the entire village and starts killing people with all these missiles and like exploding ballerina robots it's uh yeah not the carnival that you want to turn up to your uh you know your local town square your local uh, your local green don't don't hire the robot carnival you will die well i wouldn't go to my local fun fair anyway uh. that's why you always go to your county fair it's a lot nicer <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, that segment was really cool. I, I really, like I said, it felt like an extended opening credits, but with its own sort of vibe to it. And again, I just loved the fact that you had this unique way of introducing viewers to the opening credits and the opening title. Another thing I like about it is the other poster that has the two robots waltzing. Both of those robots on the poster show up in the movie. Like, one of them is effectively the conductor for the robot carnival band whose horns spit out fireworks that blow up the villages. I want a trumpet gun. <laughs> I said to Nate when we were watching that I want a trumpet gun and I stand by it. My comment on this, just seeing this village of what looks like Middle Eastern people being destroyed, this is John Bolton's wet dream. Yeah, this is just, this is just America. This is just American, American for not Amer American foreign policy, more like. <laughs> yes. Hey, don't be mad at those villagers. We're bringing them some democracy. <laughs> I'm sure they had oil somewhere. Uh, but yeah, so that that's the robot carnival section, or at least the first robot carnival section. And all those poor uh, villagers can do is stare on in dismay and. I they're just so shocked and i love the way the fact that they actually managed to animate that quite well they managed to animate it and show it as just genuine yeah those people look decimated they look like their village has just been run over by a terrifying bane blade on steroids i don't normally like things that are mean-spirited but i think this one managed to strike the right balance and not become say elfin lead or tokyo ghoul 
somehow came off more comedy despite the fact that everything that was happening was horrific i'm pretty sure that that was otomo's intention but Mm. i think we've said all we can say about that opener so now we move on to the second segment and that is franken's gear this was directed by koji morimoto He's directed a few experimental shorts. He was the director for Magnetic Rose in Memories. Yeah, the specifics, one of the two specific segments I actually took part in. Yes, he was the director for Magnetic Rose, but he's most famous as being an animator on quite a few shows. The place that most people will know Koji Morimoto from is from the Sakuga community, the community that embraces really dynamic and fluid animation and anime. There's a lot of famous, quote, Sakuga sequences that he was the animator for, which is where most people would recognize his work. But, Uh Rara, what is Franken's gear about? Uh, It's just a retelling of the Frankenstein story, very, very shortly, about a crazy old man who just wanted a robot to do his laundry. (laughs) And then that robot eventually comes to life. Uh, Not for the best. (laughs) It got really pissed off that its only purpose was to do his laundry. I... I mean, wouldn't you, if you found out your only job in life was to do some old dude's laundry? If it was Rick Sanchez, he'd probably just tell that poor robot to deal with it and then walk off drinking from his flask. Yup. I feel this segment is one of the weaker ones, though it's not mm-hmm. bad. I It's very no, basic. Yeah, I, get, I get that entirely. I don't feel it was a bad segment it was just it it didn't give as much of a story as some of the stuff that we've got coming up it's very it's very straightforward yeah it's a classic retelling of something else done but with robots and again you know i kind of like that but i feel like it doesn't have the pardon the use of the word but doesn't really have the meat of some of the other sections Mm mm-hmm and pretty much the ending of this is the ending of that one uh, Treehouse of Horror segment where Mr. Burns puts Homer's brain into a robot where this Auto 9000 from Time Squad on steroids just falls right on top of him. Because yeah. he, it, it, it's mimicking his movements. Like he's opening his arms wide like he's Kazuchiko Kata ready to throw a rainmaker. But then the scientist falls down and the robot falls down on top of him. Yeah, it doesn't end well for Dr. Science Boy, unfortunately. I do like the look of it, though. Very grimy. It's, yeah, it's Everything very is this gritty. really tasteless green. And, of course, there's a brief use of Hanna-Barbera cartoon sound effects, which is always a plus for me. Absolutely. I did giggle at that. That was kind of funny. It's also no voice acting in this, so it's even funnier when he screams and there's no words coming out of his mouth. Only one of two segments in this have voice acting, and we'll get to the seiyuu in that when we go along. But that's going to do it for Franken's Gears. Not the best segment, but... It was enjoyable. It was just, you know, it's a story that's already been done, as it were. So we move on to the second segment, and that is Deprive. Rara, take us through this one. So, this was a bit of a, you know, sort of jump shock for where we were previously. Because we've gone from, you know, this, uh, like you said, almost Hanna-Barbera cartoonish, but also kind of grimy, very gritty imagery to, oh shit, it's Jojo and Mr. the Doorstar? Yes, I never made that connection until now, but 
This segment, Deprive, was directed by a guy named Hidetoshi Omori. He wouldn't really go on to do anything significant. I mean, his only other major credits outside of this is an anime about golf called Dondo, which came out here in America and has since basically become a punchline of, Oh god, you bought Dondo? Why on earth would you buy Dondo? Uh, yeah, no, I can, I can see that. Anime about golf, sure. He also directed something called Government Crime Investigative Agent Jotaro, which has nothing to do with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Aw, It's this not very good spy anime, and the only thing that ever comes out of it is the fact that the main character snaps his fingers and goes, Da bomb! <laughs> ah, some great Japan English. And it's not like he's saying, like, you're da bomb or anything. It's just da bomb. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I I loved this segment. There was some janky animation. We'll talk about the running scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'd probably say this is the weakest visual-wise, but it still looks good. It has oh, that... It, it looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the, char- the character design was amazing, especially Gay Captain Planet. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh... Our main hero, who is a robot, who is in the human skin of what looks to be an older version of Judao Ashta from Double Zeta Gundam, infiltrates the Emerald City 2099 while fighting off Robo Bebop and Rocksteady to rescue his kidnapped daughter. Or, uh, or as I uh, happily pointed out, Demolisher from fucking Armada. Yeah, that's your 600 the, IQ uh, ro- <laughs> Yeah, one of the robots he fights is just like, ah, I have so many guns. I called this them Robo Bebop and Rocksteady because one of them is clearly a rhino. Yeah, and gets its horn ripped off in the first five seconds of the fight. I just love how many guns these robots have. Like, the mecha designer for this, whoever it was, I'm pretty sure Omri went up to him and said, there's not enough guns on this robot. Give them more guns. Guns yep. that shoot pink <laughs> energy. Of course, you know. If you're fighting for gay Captain Planet, it's got to fight, you know, got to fire uh, pink energy. And as Zordon from Power Rangers once told us, too much pink energy is dangerous. <laughs> oh no. He ends up fighting gay Captain Planet. Yeah, I this is I don't even know like, how to describe how this guy looks like. Like, he's got blue skin, but also just the most ridiculous hair I have ever seen in an anime. Yeah. I mean, if you take, literally just take Captain Planet and, like, turn him into a edgy sort of He-Man villain, I suppose? But also, like, hella gay. And that's coming from a fucking hella gay human myself, so trust me, it's, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's so well done. And just a, where there's no context, because they're having to get these to you at such high speeds, all we know about gay Captain Planet is that he does not like human robot boy and he wanted to kidnap girl so <laughs> i assume he's bad yeah he also has a laser eye beam too yeah of course because you know what what else can you give to your wonderful oc wonder if he can use that to suck out his haymon energy oh for fuck's sake <laughs> oh blimey hey yeah, guess who just boarded was... the jojo's train i mean 
It's a good train to be on, trust me. One might even say that it's the last train home. Oh! Oh! He ends up defeating gay Captain Planet and saving the girl, running out of the fortress, and you pointed out the ridiculous running animation. It's just one shot, but... That was some real running. He's got his arms behind his back to support her. Like, he's not even Naruto running. Like, it's very much a case of where... You know how whenever you want to give, like, your baby cousin a piggyback ride, you'll put your arms behind your back to use it as a stepping stone? That's it's what bad, he's doing. Really weirdly, not badly, but weirdly animated, if that makes sense. I would say there's really nothing to deprive substance-wise, but there doesn't need to be. It's a dumb it's, little action set piece. Yeah, it's just, you could literally remove all the audio from that and replace it with U.S. Shock and there'd be no difference. Like, it'd be fantastic. In fact, someone out there do that. <laughs> Somebody out there, please set this to, like, a Judas Priest song or Iron Maiden's The Trooper. Yes. Yes, the Trooper would be a great choice. And for the final battle, you can use Hallowed Be Thy Name. But if the first two segments were simple and straightforward, the next segment is where things get emotional with Presence. And this one is directed by, uh uh-oh, Yasuomi Umetsu. And oh boy, this guy's resume... Yasuomi Umetsu is perhaps known best as a character designer. He did the character designer for the Tatsunoko reboot OAVs of the 90s. He did character designs for the Gachiman OAV, for the Kashan OAV, and for the Hurricane Palomar OAV. He was also the character designer on a more recent show called Kokoku. He was the character designer on Megazone 2-3 Part 2, which, which is visually the best of all the Megazone OAVs. And he was a character designer on the worst Shin Megami Tensei game. Shin Megami Tensei 9. Yeah, he was the character developer for 9. He also did stuff for um, Castlevania, if I remember correctly. Like, the guy's name is ringing a bell. I think I've got the right person? Well, he's mostly known as a director for hentai. Oh, no. He directed a part of Cool Devices, and I'm going to stress, I have never seen any hentai in my life. I only know this because I checked his Anime News Network page. Oh, no. But his most well-known works are hentai. In particular, Mezzoforte and Kite. Oh, dear. (laughs) I've actually heard Kite is pretty good, but I want to hunt down only the R-rated cut, because I am not watching fucking kitty porn. Yeah, no, let's not. He's mostly gone on to direct mediocre stuff since then, like the TV series version of Mezzo, something called Wizard Barristers, and Galilee Donna. But if you must ask me, I'd say this is the best thing he has directed. So, Rara, take us through what happened in Presence. So, a dude that we can only describe as Benedict Cumberbatch is sad about the fact that his wife is so cool, as played by quote-unquote Gwendolyn Christie. So basically what he does is he goes and makes a new wife out of robot parts, and then she gets too sentient, so he punches her in the face. (laughs) And then because he punched her in the face, every gun gets sad. And then 20 fucking years later, he's still sad about it and sees her. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to go and take a look. And oh, she's still there where I punched her all those years ago. And then 20 more years later, he's like, oh, I see her again because I've finally forgiven myself for punching her in the face. And then did I do it well enough? <laughs> I wrote down that the guy looks like Alan Partridge. 
I don't know why. I think now is a good time to talk about the music. It's gorgeous. Like, the music in every section is absolutely beautiful. I, I really love what they've done. Every section has its own sort of musical motifs. Um, the sound design is completely different in every single one. It's just so damn good. Like, seriously good. And honestly, like, I, I loved every second of it. Well, would you like to know who did the music for this? Please. Mr. Studio Ghibli himself joe hisaishi no fucking way yep the composer that for practically so every studio ghibli movie was was the composer for this film and you wouldn't know it because of how heavy on synthesizers this is but it makes so much sense now i think about it though he was actually playing at i believe the met in new york two years ago and i was so upset because i didn't want to splurge on tickets i could have gone to see him I guarantee you, though, if I uh, went, I'd be the only person in the crowd that night who was wearing a tuxedo. Oh, nice. Yeah, unfortunately, though, he'd probably only be playing Ghibli movie stuff and not anything from Robot Carnival, which is sad because I'd love to hear the music for Presence live. Absolutely. Played on an yeah, actual the, piano. The music for that would have been beautiful. Mm-hmm. I was worried how you'd feel about this segment because it didn't seem so hot with you. Yeah, so there was a lot of vibes i got from it that were a bit difficult like um you know the whole you know i i have experienced abusive relationships before and there were some real nasty feels to some of what was going on but at the same time like the actual storyline for the whole thing and like uh the redemption almost that both characters get and the kind of beauty to the end of it as well like the fact that you know that symbolism to the end the mm -hmm. toy that he has is of her and you know he finally forgives himself as i like to see it at the end for what he's done mm -hmm. and that has stayed with him for so long and again like uh, and nate will back me up here I, I called the fact that when he back went back to the workshop she'd still just be there crumpled in the corner and it's almost heartbreaking like it's it's so beautifully done and it's it's very human so it wasn't that it didn't sit well with me it just it it struck a few chords that were sort of really really powerful mm -hmm. and i loved it to bits i always interpreted this segment as a man who is unsatisfied with his marriage because he mentions early on that he has a very successful wife who's like the head of a company. Meanwhile, here he is working some blue-collar job as a toy maker or something, while his wife sits on the board of like some French Fortune 500 company. So he sees no satisfaction in their relationship. So, in order to fill that void, he goes to this old shack somewhere in the woods and builds himself a human doll that he's programmed to display emotions. It's basically there to fill in the hole in his relationship. Somebody mm. that truly understands him. Somebody who can be loyal to him. Would you say that that's some sort of, some form of toxic masculinity? You could definitely interpret it as that, as that but at the same time, it also, you could also interpret it. I like to be able to see things from two different ways at all times. I really like to be able to see sort of the duality of any situation. And I feel like, yeah, you could definitely see that as toxic masculinity. You could see it as, you know, my wife doesn't have time to me, so I'll find someone else because I need woman like well, because I'm man. Well, he's technically not cheating time, on her. No, but at the same time, he says about, you know, he, he never had a mother figure in his life. And, you know, he 
he has this sort of desire for a feminine voice in his life and he doesn't make her specifically to love that's not what he designed her for mm-hmm. when she starts showing affection for him he actively rejects it at first and it's it's again kind of powerful it's that sort of feeling of you know he's created this for a purpose that perhaps he doesn't even really understand himself and you know when it starts showing independence and showing you know its own thoughts it's it's difficult for him because he's not used to so much emotion equally you could like you know as you said see it as him you know being needing to be in control you know he's not in control in his relationship he's not the dominant person and maybe he you know needs to force that but it's no matter how you look at it it's it's beautifully deep and beautifully dark and again like i said it struck some real chords with me i really really love this segment it's my single favorite segment of the bunch and i to finish up my interpretation he ends up hating the thing he creates because you talked about how this was effectively meant to fill a hole in his life like it wasn't meant to be a substitute for his wife it's just somebody that he can talk to somebody that understands him but once it starts showing sentience it it's it ultimately develops a conscious asking what its purpose is what its existence is when it embraces him and he just has this utter shock on his face of what his creation has done and what he does like that slap in the face when he throws her against the mirror yeah it was painful it was he's not doing it out of anger out of fear because i feel i'm now interpreting that as even though he may not get any satisfaction out of his relationship he ultimately wants to stay loyal to his wife yeah i can definitely see that as well and then later on he has a vision and i I did a video review of this with uh brandon aka the hardcore kid at magfest one year and I threw in the joke from the Ren and Stimpy episode, Stimpy's Big Day, where Stimpy is haunting Ren. But he sees visions of this robot, and she just explodes in front of him, like malfunctions, Mm. mentioning the words, I'm still waiting for my prince. And I never got the final part until you talked about it with me. The last act is him going back to the shed and just ultimately seeking redemption. He's going back to forgive himself. You know, the android he made isn't there to forgive him anymore because, you know, she's essentially, to put it bluntly, she's essentially dead. You know, he's seeking redemption for what he did. And in the end, in that very last segment, he gets that. I'm at least happy that he just left her there. Like, he didn't put her in the dumpster and send her off to the breaker's yard yeah because he couldn't he couldn't bring himself to do that because ultimately even though she wasn't a human he treated her like a human he saw that individuality and that uh, emotion as her being human so you know he needed that redemption at the end because she was human to him and he's ultimately redeemed at the end for what he did And I got emotionally choked up during our watch party of this, but Mm -hmm. he takes the hand of the ghost of the android girl and they just walk off into the sunset together, ultimately signifying that he's passed on. Yeah, absolutely. I should also note before we move on, this is the one of only two segments with voice acting and the man 
is voiced by Ultraman. He is voiced by Koji Moritsugu, who was Ultra 7 from Ultraman. Damn, okay. I couldn't find much on the voice actress who voiced the girl. I'm guessing that she just did this as a one-time sort of thing and then moved on to something else. I'm guessing she's like a theater actress or something because she doesn't have that many credits on IMDb. Um, Yeah, quite possibly. In the dub, the man is voiced by Michael McConaughey, who is a luminary in the world of anime dubbing. But as for the girl, that's a bit of a sad story because the android girl was voiced by a woman named Lisa Mickelson, who was a part of Streamline Pictures crew. Uh, She was in the streamlined dub of both My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service. Robot Carnival was her final dubbing role before she was tragically killed in a car accident. That's really heartbreaking, actually. The English credits of Robot Carnival are dedicated to her memory. Absolutely, and I I think that's the best way to do so. I, I think that's kind of beautiful, actually. And honestly, as well, for for a last role, that, that ending as well is, you know, really significant for a last role. I did not realize that going into this, and wow. I figured I'd spring some behind-the-scenes stuff on you uh, after this was over. Absolutely, yeah. It's also sadder when you realize that she was actually married to another voice actor, and one of my favorite obscure voice actors who sadly doesn't do any more dubbing, at least in America anymore. That guy's name is Gregory Snegoff. He was Ray in the streamlined dub of the Fist of the North Star movie, and also Golgo 13 in um, Golgo 13 The Professional. I'll probably show you something that he was in. He had a very unique voice, and I'm sad that he doesn't do American voice acting anymore, because we could use someone like him. But moving on to happier territory, we move on to the next segment, Starlight Angel. Yeah, this section was a real, like, shake-up after such a like, <laughs> such a sad segment, and then straight into this was such a, a real, uh, like, emergency stop. It was huge. Would you say it's the uh, come-up segment? Yeah, absolutely. It's... It's got its quirks, but it's definitely the happier segment. So this segment was directed by Hiroyuki Kitazume. Uh, He's mostly known as a character designer, namely for Dragonar, Southern Cross, Dragon's Heaven, Dragon Century, and Muldiver. And I believe he was also the character designer for Double Zeta Gundam. Oh shit, okay. Yeah, I think that actually explains quite a lot. Well... If he gave us the character design for Kara soon, I'm not complaining, even though Kara soon is a complete and utter bitch. Yeah, no, I can give you that. <laughs> She's a total bitch slut whore. <sighs> oh, blimey. But yeah, this segment was a real change of pace. So to give a brief rundown again, we are introduced to two best of friendos who have gone to a fun fair together. Not just uh, any fun so- fair. A robot-themed funfair, because of course it's a robot-themed funfair. Yeah, but what, what what does it look like? Where, where'd they go? It's Disney World! <laughs> it's Disney. It's very quickly recognizable as Disney. This came out four years after Tokyo Disneyland opened, so you can see why they kind of borrowed inspiration for this segment. Yeah, so to run you through the next bit, the rest of it, basically, um, best of friendos are having fun, 
one of the best friend loses her locket, we'll call her Pink Girl. Other girl is Yellow Girl. And then we find out that uh, Yellow Girl is, um, you know, getting it with uh, Pink Girl's um, friend. Sharaznable. Okay, so we're back after a little bit of a transition. Rara had something come up and we had to postpone the recording. So we've given the film a few more days to settle in and simmer down. And mostly our thoughts have not changed. But let's get back into the swing of things. We left off on Starlight Angel right up to the point where our main girl meets her boyfriend, who is practically Char Aznable. Yup. And, oh boy, that was uh, not fun for either of the girls in that situation. <laughs> that was just a bad time. Well, she lost her pendant. And I never noticed this, I just thought the pendant was just a little gift or trinket that she had. It's very low detailed in the film, but... It's the subtle. It's subtle. It doesn't kick you in the face with that information like the some animes do. It, it gives you that information very subtly and calmly and sort of goes like, hey, this is this is, this is is information you might need later on. And then all of a sudden, ah, now you need that information. And it's really well done. Well, the pendant is actually a locket. And in that locket was a picture of Char Aznable. I mean, a, a lot of stuff like this, a lot of... Um... I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, Bai Shoujo? A lot of sort of Bai Shoujo stories are more subtle. And I, I enjoy that sort of story writing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's really settled with me that it's actually quite well done as a story. It tells a very shortly describable story of <laughs> sadness and then happiness again. Very, very well and i quite liked that about it and i think that at the point we were at we were sort of i was uh ex- ready to expect everything anything because of course again like we had we had the uh wonders of the uh robot friend now starts tracking her down to give her back the pendant <laughs> yeah we forgot to mention this guy but these two girls they look like they're gonna double clothesline this robot looking <laughs> guy like he looks like C-3PO, except he's turquoise. C-3PO and the Iron Giant had a baby, <laughs> which is a, a process I'd not like to consider. It's a very derpy, but humanoid robot. With only one face, but you know what? That's common, because with a lot of Japanese superhero shows, when you're limited only by just one face you can make, you have to use a lot of body language. And thanks to the magic of animation, that allows this robot with only one derpy-looking face to be way more expressive than he would be if it was just a suit act. Exactly. Also, when you talk about subtle details, I've seen this film multiple times, and I never noticed this. As our derpy robot friend is walking through the crowd, he pushes aside somebody, and if you look carefully, (laughs) one of the people he pushes aside is the colonel from akira yeah we worked this out we had to pause and stop because holy crap it was actually just him and again that's that's really nicely cameoed this was a year or like several months before akira came out no way this was before akira okay let me double check that's new information this thing came out a year before akira did so this dude is not 
originally from Akira. He's not the colonel from Akira. The colonel from Akira is the dude from Robot Carnival. Well, just remember, the manga came <laughs> out well before the film did. Sure, that's fine. No, I want to believe that. Let me believe this, Nate. Let me have this one thing. That's like saying Sonic made his debut in Sega's, like, virtual racing before he actually debuted in Sonic the Hedgehog. Sure, fine. But she eventually wanders into this one attraction where she is mm -hmm. forcibly picked up by a pair of robot hands, sent flying in this gondola-like thing, and she meets our derpy robot friend. At and, last, they finally meet. And honestly, there's it's just a very nicely animated segment, and she has a little flight of fancy with the robot man, and the robot man tries giving back her pendant, and she rejects him. Yeah, because the pendant does her a sad. Not that he would have known that. Also, while this is going on, her other friend bright slaps Sharaznable. Yup. I love that. It's so well choreographed. It's beautifully animated. Not much to my surprise that it's beautifully animated, but that slap is just iconic to this film, I think. That's a beautiful moment. After this emotional beat happens everything turns to black and white and you made a very interesting comparison when we were watching this rara what did you I say <laughs> i said it really reminded me of the music video but take on me by a heart. it's funny you say that because in an interview about robot carnival i believe it was hiroyuki kitazume he said that that music video was the inspiration oh. for Starlight Angel. Brilliant. Okay, so that's actually that's, that's actually a good call. I, I picked out their inspiration. I'm happy with that. But again, yeah, it's it's not clear. Like, I'm not trying... I wouldn't say it's like, oh, it's obviously copied, but it's also a really nice little nod, and you can draw the comparisons quite easily. Like, it I'd, I'd encourage anyone to go and watch Robot Carnival and see for yourself the fact that this is like... You'll pick up on it. You'll notice. There is no gratuitous rotoscoping in this segment. No. No. Luckily, there's not that, at least. Like, this part of Starlight Angel is more of an aesthetical comparison than, say, oh, it's a ripoff of the Take On Me video. But they do fight the main villain of this piece, which is this evil, giant robot-looking thing. You said it looked like an Ava unit? Yeah, it kind of looks like an angry Ava unit. <laughs> Or a very aggressive Gundam. In my review I did with Brandon, I said it looked like a cross between Mazen Kaiser and the Armored Titan. Yeah, which I also gave you, like, total props for saying as well. I think you picked out some good choices there. But I'm sticking with Angry Eva. <laughs> I think it looks like an Eva 01 that's uh, woken up on the bad side of the bed today. The head kind of does make it feel like an Ava unit, though I, I think mm. it looks more like Ava unit 2. Yeah, sure. Sure, I can I can see it looking more like two. No, let's not get into a full Eva discussion here. Yeah, let's save that for Eva's another a, debate, but we're not going to cover Evangelion on this podcast anytime soon because everybody does it. Yeah, no, no, this, this is the podcast for obscure animes and cool and weird ones. But they defeat the Armored Titan. During this fight, the robot boy gets his helmet knocked off only to reveal... It's a dude. Or more specifically, somebody that looks like Amuro Ray. Never forget, we have a Gundam character designer on this. 
I, I wonder if that oh was Amaro Ray before this or after this. It would have been after this, surely. This was eighty seven. Gundam was seventy nine. Oh, oh, of course, yeah. Blimey, I forget how old Gundam is. It astounds me every time someone reminds me that that thing came out in the 70s. It just, it still holds up today. But anyway, yes, we find out that Amaro Ray was underneath the robot boy all all along. And he uses his courage to help the girl defeat this evil Ava unit, which is... the power of friendship. Or rather the power of throwing a spear of light into its eye. Which yes, I that. don't think would be enough to defeat a Titan like that, but hey, I'm not going to argue it. Since the yeah. Titan is meant as a metaphor for her own despair and her own demons. I think that, that, that definitely comes to light. You can definitely see that. And so after the battle is over, she ultimately reunites with her friend and Amuro Ray, and they go off into the night at 11pm. Yeah. I don't know if Tokyo I... Disneyland is open that late, but hey, who am I to judge? Meanwhile, somewhere out there, Shar Aznable's plotting his revenge, but that's for another anime. He's probably gonna drop a meteor on future Tokyo Disneyland. That suddenly explains quite a lot, actually. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, that segment was really good. I really enjoyed it. I think it was a really nice change of pace from the segment beforehand. Um, However, the change of pace, again, we, we switch gears so quickly in Robot Carnival, especially at this particular crop because we suddenly change gears very quickly again for the next segment oh boy is your least favorite i i kind of liked cloud Uh, i i kind of liked it you 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 dubbed it the piss break yeah (laughs) that brings us to cloud which was directed by mao lamdo the nom de plume of a guy named manabu ohashi when I first heard reviews of Robot Carnival, I had no idea who this guy was, but mm. after Googling his name, and this was when I was doing research for the review, this guy has actually been an animator since 1963 on Astro Boy. Oh, damn. Okay. Okay, ah, that explains the character design quite a lot. <laughs> and he is also a children's book illustrator. As a matter of fact... This segment is an adaptation of one of his books. Oh, how wonderful. I'm not a fan of it. Mm. I, I liked it, but then again, I'm I'm an artsy-fartsy type. I enjoy sort of, you know, the deep cuts. And I thought that it was a really, it was a really bleak reference to how quickly the world has grown up when you take it into account and how quickly it could all go away. But yeah, it's design is beautiful. We've got a really, really cool character design that I now realize why it reminded me of Astro Boy so much with this sort of almost androgynous-y robot friend walking along with clouds behind them whilst the history of the world happens. (laughs) It's pretty much sort of meant as a metaphor to show the fragility of human existence. Meanwhile, this robot boy is still walking even after humanity has supposedly died out or is near the brink of extinction. And by the end, for whatever reason, he becomes a human boy. Yeah, which was the biggest confusion he bit. I mean, he didn't really undergo an arc, I guess... He was chosen to help repopulate humanity, I guess? Sure, we'll go with that. That works, question mark. It, it is a very artsy segment, but it doesn't feel like yeah. it's got its head shoved up its ass. Yeah. 
oh absolutely it's not pretentious in any way but it's very it's a very deep cut i feel there's not much more i can really say about it though i don't feel like there's much of i don't feel like i get much of an opinion on it i feel that again the music design is beautiful but as we discussed you know the music is you know by probably one of the best music directors in animation at the time so i'm not surprised I think my problem with Cloud isn't that it's pretentious or artsy-fartsy. It's just that it goes on for too long. It's the longest yeah. segment. I, it goes on for like 11, I think it's like nine minutes. It's weird because it's the one with the least substance as well. So it's the longest segment, but it has the least substance. You can literally describe it as boy walks in front of history of the world. Well, from an animation standpoint, like there's a lot of messages in there. But oh, honestly, yeah. if, if I wanted a story about robots exploring the fragility of human existence in a apocalyptic setting, I'll just play Nier Automata. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, and some wonderful character design in that too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I don't feel I can really say much more about Cloud. I enjoyed it. I took away a lot from it. But out of all the segments, it entertained me the least. I would put this one below Franken's Gears, to be honest. Yeah. Because Franken's Gears, even though there was virtually nothing to that segment, it was very much meant as sort of, a, it sets the tone for what's to come, as far as themes go. But we go on from the artsy-fartsy segment to the pure comedy segment. To that my is... favorite segment in the entire fucking film. I loved this so much. Strange Tales of Meiji Machine Culture, The Westerners' Invasion, or as it was called when it first aired in the United States on the Sci-Fi Channel, A Tale of Two Robots. This segment was directed by Hiroyuki Kitakubo, who was quite a prominent director in the early 90s, and directed something in the early 2000s that still has its fans, also, the character design was done from one of the founders of Gaimax, because I had to actually go and take a look at this, and it's um, uh, Sadamoto. Yes, Yoshiyuki Sadamoto. One of the founders of Gainax. I was like, uh, I thought I recognized a sort of signature touch, so I, I did some digging on the Wikipedias after our watch session, and yeah. But Kitakubo, the director, he directed Blackmagic M66, the movie Rujin Z, which I want to talk about, uh, Blood the Last Vampire, which is probably the last significant thing he directed, but I can never ever knock Hiroyuki Kitakubo because he directed what is perhaps one of the funniest anime ever made, Golden Boy. I do not know Golden Boy. Oh, Rara, we're gonna have to have a watch party for that one. Oh, definitely. If you okay. like sex comedies, Golden Boy is the, well, gold standard. All right, we'll have to pencil that one in because that sounds brilliant. <laughs> So, Rara, what is uh, Meiji about? So Meiji is about horrible, weird beetle robot mecha invading Japan. So a group of kids have to stop him with a robot they quote-unquote built for the parade. <laughs> and they are both so stylized and so, like, sort of Western versus Eastern culture, it feels like a damn propaganda film. And I'm pretty sure that's um, what it was meant to be. Yeah, and with the ending as well, which we'll get to in time as well, That's that was a, a, a beautiful little moment. So they have a sort of prolonged fight sequence, essentially, where we find out first that the westerners robot is not actually made of wood it's made of brick which... oh, oh, oh 
beautifully done we also get anyone who sort of follows me on twitter or anything will have noticed this pop up now because it's my banner on twitter um the best line in anime history of all time uh the background of my computer now as well shut up dumbass japan's in danger (laughs) you know rara i said this when we were watching be thankful i did not show you the dub Oh, I'm so glad. I don't want them to have ruined that. This section made me smile so much. Yeah, so you've got these really massive characters on the sort of Japanese side of, like, you've got big dumb guy who's fueling the engine. You've got Poindexter Kid, you know, doing the arms and making sure everything's working. You've got fearless, sweary, angry leader who's a bit of an idiot. Uh, You've got the token female character who really felt like a token female character at this but i'll allow it because she was also brilliant and then you had the guy working the legs whose personality was that of cardboard <laughs> and that is one of my favorite tropes in uh, in some animes you get it in quite a few this character who's just uh, doesn't even have emotion in their voice <laughs> their eyes are usually not even open you know the guys <laughs> It's funny because those characters you talked about, they're basically meant as a parody of the five robot pilots you'd see in, well, a five robot combiner show. Like, Combatler V, uh, Voltron, God Help You, Gravion, you've got the Hot-Blooded Hero, you've got the Loner, the Kid, the Token Female, and the Fat Guy. Or as we joked in the review, the Kid's Next Door. Yep. So the kids next door have to uh, stop this evil foreign pilot with his questionable English voice acting. Yeah, which is even funnier when you find out that it's not actually bad Japan English. It's actually an English voice actor. (laughs) I always love it when Japan employs native English speakers on the Japanese track because oftentimes it's either going to turn out passable or it's going to be unintentionally hilarious like the infamous worst black guy in a japanese dub ever clip from legend of black heaven yeah the guy who was really chill when he was supposed to be really angry (laughs) but to go to the dub in the dub the evil scientist john jack vogelson the third is voiced by english dub luminary steve kramer and he does a good job making a very silly villain actually sound quite menacing But as far as the Japanese kids go, Streamline Pictures who dubbed this thought that in order to showcase that this was a battle between the Japanese and the evil foreigners, decided to give all the characters on the Japanese side stereotypical Japanese accents. And it is hilarious. Oh no, I don't want to watch the dub now, do I? Well, I'll play you a clip just to confirm it. Sure. What's going on here? Early 90s dubs, you gotta take them or leave them sometimes. Oh no. But I really love this segment. It is a fun parody of Super Robot anime. And this was in the middle of that 1980s mecha boom when you had the golden period of sunrise with things like Mm. Dugrum and Votoms and Pat Labor and Dragonar and all the Gundam stuff that was coming out. And the thing is, it even ends unconventionally for those shows as well and the, the ending like two bits of it are absolutely beautiful i want to highlight the fact that both of the robots get knocked over and fall over and just 
quote unquote destroyed we find out that the westerner is made it away with a weird bicycle attachment but of course they destroy the entire town that they're protecting i love how they emphasize the collateral damage for all this like we're being heroes as we're knocking over all of these people's homes with our robots that go at one mile every three hours and then there's a really beautiful and we were saying the part that I was talking about earlier on with uh, it being similar to a propaganda film that I said at the end. So after this, they're all stood on a hilltop and, you know, they're discussing how great they are or, you know, in the case of the, you know, token female shooting down how terrible the collateral damage was. And uh, the rising sun of Japan, the Tancho, appears over the sea on the horizon to celebrate their victory. And then I can't remember which character it is, points out that they're facing west and that's the uh, sundown, not sunrise. The exact opposite of Japanese pride of land of the rising sun. (laughs) Oh, which I found beautiful. I found like the fact that they actually pointed that out as well. It was just such a, a shoot down and it was brilliantly done. I also love all the little things they do to make this segment stand out even more. Like, for example, mm. the evil scientist, John Jack Volgelson III, he resorts to bike power when all of his batteries are drained, and the kids <laughs> next door have to use the floorboards when they run out of coal. Yeah. It's just so brilliant how they're able, and you said at the beginning of this segment, oh no, don't tell me there's going to be robots in Meiji, Japan. Yeah, I, I, I like my Japanese history, and the, the Meiji period is, you know, a really, really interesting part of Japan. And I was like, oh, don't do Mecca in Meiji, that's kind of silly, and then it became my favorite segment, and I love it to bits. You didn't know that you wanted it now, did you? <laughs> nope. <laughs> and, and yeah, and now it's something that I'm going to carry with me forever, because I f- fucking love the line of, shut up, dumbass, Japan's in danger. Also, as far as the action in this goes, what little of it there is... This is going to be my 600 IQ reference to those who don't know. Remember the Walker battles from season three of Robot Wars? It's kind of like that. Oh, they're moving towards each other. And at some point in the next century, they might collide. (laughs) Also, one more thing to know before we move on to the penultimate segment. There is a lot of voice talent on the Japanese side. Yeah, absolutely. I was taking a look at this myself as well. Uh, San Kichi, our main hero, is voiced by Kei Tomoyama, famous for being Susumu Kodai, a.k.a. Dirk Wildstar, in Space Battleship Yamato. I will always know and love him for being Yang Wen Lee from Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Yayoi, the girl, is voiced by Chisa Yokoyama, most famous for being Sakura Shinguji from Sakura Wars, but you may also know her as Sasami in Tenchi Muyo and Biscuit Kruger in Hunter Hunter. Uh, Fukusuke, the kid, is voiced by Katsue Miwa, the voice of Yuniko, and Perman number one in several kids' anime by Fujiko Fujio, and the original voice mm-hmm. of Mokuba Kaiba in Yu-Gi-Oh! Season Zero. No way, that's Mokuba's... The original Mokuba. Oh, no, I re- yeah, I thought I recognized it. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, the, that, this is the original Mokuba, not the dual monsters Mokuba. No, no, I know the one you mean. Season, quote unquote season zero. Denjiro is voiced by the late great Kaneto Shiazawa. You may know him as Rei in Fist of the North Star, Prince Diamond in Sailor Moon, and again, to talk about my favorite anime ever, he was Paul von Oberstein in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. And Daimaru, the fat guy, is voiced by Toku Nishio. You want to talk about being typecast? He was Musashi in the original Getter Robo. 
So he was the original fat guy oh, robot nice. pilot. Also, as far as more talent goes, I want to give a shout out to the mecha designer, Mahiro Maeda, who also did mecha design work for Magic Users Club, Van Dread. He did weapon design for Samurai Champloo. But his two major directorial credits are Blue Submarine Number 6, and perhaps the greatest show ever made by Studio Gonzo, Gonkutsuo. Oh, nice. Okay. But that's going to do it for A Tale of Two Robots. Honestly, this is my second favorite segment behind Presence. Mm. And then we end on the last segment, Chicken Man and Redneck, or as it was known in the original dub, Nightmare. This one Mm -hmm. was directed by Takashi Nakamura, director of such experimental anime like A Tree of Palm, Catnapped, Harmony, and the criminally underrated TV series Fantastic Children. He was also a character designer for the 2004 Tetsujin 28 series, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, Tears to Tiara, and he even did design work on a live-action film, A Chinese Ghost Story, which I watched as part of a college course, and the best way I can describe that one... Chinese Evil Dead. Oh, that actually sounds hella interesting. It's a great movie. I watched it. Yeah, I, I might have to give that a check out. That's, that sounds really cool. So, Rara, what is Nightmare about? And this might be the hardest section to describe. <laughs> I'm going to do my absolute best to mystery science there to the fuck of this into a description. So, essentially, a Skitari from Warhammer 40k comes to life when everyone else is asleep in, I am assuming, Tokyo, and basically starts bringing anything metal to life and creating terrifying monsters. But unfortunately, he didn't expect the fact that a drunk dude would be awake. And basically, drunk dude spoils all of Skitari's plans and ruins everything. How else am I meant to describe this? This one is probably the hardest to follow from a storytelling standpoint. Like, yeah. it's really hard to tell just what's going on, but I don't consider the segment to be bad or the weakest segment. It's no, not so. visually it... stunning, and the soundtrack to this one is a total bop. Like, you could play this yeah. at a dance party, and nobody would question its origin. And and what I like as well is the fact that it, it gives off very fant- Fantasia vibes. It's like, you don't, you don't need to follow the story. It's here for you to, to look at how amazing all this stuff is. Look at all this animation. Isn't it awesome? What this segment reminds me of, and this is another very obscure reference, it makes me think of the paraphernalia wagon scene from It's Grinch Night. Yeah. Just replace okay. Joe Raposo's beautiful haunting orchestral piece with 80s techno synth pop and some very scarily industrial scenes that you get to see yeah, it's really hard. it's it's beautifully done it's really hard to figure out just what happens like the drunk guy who looks like a mix of Stu pickles and richard hammond basically gets on board this scooter and is riding through like this robot rave party featuring like these really crazy looking robot designs like they don't necessarily look menacing they look really kooky they're very uh, so a lot of them are sort of quite spindly and some of them are just very clearly sort of blocky industrial designs like they don't necessarily like you said they don't necessarily intimidate but they are very powerfully industrial in in design they're more organic looking yeah 
especially the ones that dance on this little pedestal and then get smashed by Mr. Psycho's hammer and turn into a giant chicken robot thing with actual chicken breasts. That was a that was a whole thing. The guy gets caught up in this rave party while the skit schizoid you said? Skitari. While the 21st century Skitari bot, who looks like Crow from Mystery Science Theater 3000. I am disappointed we got no Tom Servo. Yeah, evil Crow T robot tries to stop him, I guess. And I guess the clock strikes midnight or the sun comes up and he winds up parked on a building and suddenly the city, like Tokyo, looks like the hole from Dorohedoro. Unfortunately, Kaimen and Nikaido are not coming to get you down from there. But Nightmare as a segment, it's all about the visuals, though. I would say, story-wise, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this segment. Like, I don't say it's weak or anything, but it's sort of like in the middle of the pack for me. It's it's definitely not the best segment. It's not the worst segment. It was weird. I think it does its job to close out the show before we get to the final segment, which is the ending. But would you say that this is a good show closer? Yeah, it was quite nice to end on. I feel like it was a good sort of... It, it captured the rest of the vibe. It, it had some sort of intimidating scenery. It had some comedy to it. Uh, it had beautiful sound design, you know, it sort of kind of encapsulated quite a lot of it together. And given that the English name is Nightmare, it does capture that dreamscape. Absolutely. And that's going to do it for all the segments, but there's one last thing we have to talk about. And that is yep. the closing segment. It goes back to the beginning. We go back to our little friends at the... Uh... At the village of people who don't know how to speak well, any form of language. Well, before that, what, what happens with the robot carnival float? Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. So before that, it uh, the robot carnival itself um, gets stuck on a dune. It does its best and then just gets stuck on a dune and starts to fall apart because it's very old at this point. It can level entire villages and kill millions of innocent civilians, but it can't get over a simple sand dune. Yep. Which means that if this thing ever comes to Long Beach Island, all it can do is just hide out on the beach because it won't get over the dunes. Of course, yeah. So you're, you're, you're well protected, as it were. And after that, we get the ending credits, which are all still images, but it showcases that, you know, the robot carnival... It didn't always destroy villages and kill people. It was meant to make people happy. Yeah, which is really sweet. The the images are basically the robot carnival entertaining people in, like, Europe. But then, apparently, it got bought by the Pentagon and then was used for evil, apparently. Yeah, you see it gets sort of transported by battleships across the water. Mm-hmm. Again, got bought by the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. But there's one last segment before we close out the movie. Yeah, the bit I mentioned where we go back to our uh, friendly villages, possibly like 200, 300 years later. I would say it's like three days later, considering that sandstorms can bury things within hours. Yeah, sure. I got the vibe that it was longer, but I could I could definitely see that it was uh, shorter than there was sandstorms. But what yeah. happens uh, in this little stinger? So, uh, a, a traveling, uh, man goes in there, finds himself something from the, uh, 
<laughs> the robot carnival. He finds this orb and brings it home to his family. That was a bad move. Yes. So he opens it up, and it's one of those tiny, it's a tiny little version of one of those ballerinas from Alia. Remember? Mm-hmm. And it entertains the entire family and then blows up and kills them all. <laughs> I always... And we end on such dark and wonderful humor. I love seeing how people react to that stinger, because most of them either go, what the hell, or just laugh out loud. And I think you'll find I was in the laugh and what the hell. I think I covered both because it was beautiful, but also what the fuck. And on that wonderfully beautiful, hilariously tragic note ends Robot Carnival. So, Rara, you've got the floor now. Tell me your overall thoughts on this. I didn't know what to expect going into this. And from our pre-show, I was sort of excited to see what it would bring but not quite sure of what we'd what we'd get from it and i wasn't just pleasantly surprised i was absolutely astounded at what we discovered you know it was absolutely beautiful um it was something that both entertained you know to the heart but also you know it was absolutely hilariously funny as well and i absolutely adore this and like i said i i don't say this lightly but i feel it might have actually become my new favorite anime film it isn't my absolute favorite but it's definitely in my top five it's so good and so enjoyable and i i want to tell everyone about it because it's just so good you know there is a panel that i've been to several times now called anime's appearances in non-anime and The perception of anime as portrayed by the media, likely people who are only vaguely familiar with it, is one of two things. These hyper-violent, gory, sexy, tentacle porn cartoons that come from Japan, or these super-powered, hyper-battle, high-school-setting-type anime shows that come from Japan. There's no middle ground. Yeah, it's one or the other. It can't be anything else. It has to be one or the other. Robot Carnival is something that I show to people who are either new to anime or a very limited perception of it as sort of a statement to say, hey, this is what anime can truly be. Because it has something for everybody. There's comedy, there's romance, there's emotional bits. Like, as the name implies, it's practically a carnival. Don't like the thrill rides? Here's some kitty attractions. Don't like the kitty attractions? Here's something thrilling. The only real thing missing is the overly expensive and rot your arteries food. Exactly. And hey, maybe that missing is a good part. Mm. Well, much like the actual robot carnival featured in the film, that carnival food will kill you. Yeah, it was superb. I, I really enjoyed it. Definitely a movie that I recommend everybody should go and watch to showcase what anime is capable of to showcase why the 80s was such a great decade for anime and i don't think it's one of the greatest anime movies ever made i think it's one of the greatest animated features ever and considering that this was made by a lot of the staff on akira i and this is going to be a very controversial take i think this is a much better movie than akira And that's not to say that I think Akira is overrated. It is an important piece of film, and I love it to death. But in terms of structure, what it accomplishes, what it sets out to do, 
I think Robot Carnival is the better film, and it's more than just an adaptation of a pre-existing work that only gets partially through the material. Absolutely, and I feel it was really, really enjoyable. I feel like anyone can find a segment of Robot Carnival to enjoy. Again, this is something that I would show to people who aren't fans of anime, saying like, so, you think anime is just this? Well, here's Robot Carnival to show you the types of storytelling that anime is capable of. Yeah. I'd say that the most stereotypically anime of all the segments is Deprive, but even then, that's an enjoyable story in and of itself. Yeah. I feel that it gives off a really fantastic whole experience. You're given this array of different stories, different vibes, different emotions, and everything is represented. And I feel like people who are experienced to anime like myself or, you know, people who have like a very specific sect of anime that they may be like will find something that they enjoy in this. And lastly, before we uh, finish up, if you were to rank the segments from your favorite to least favorite, Ooh. what would it be? like? Is difficult. To... So I think we would go Strange Tales of Meiji Machine Culture at the top, 100%. Very close seconds, Starlight Angel. Then we would go on to Presence, then Deprive, then probably the sort of overarching opening ending, then Franken's Gears, then Cloud, then Chicken Man and Redneck. All right, that's fair. Mine, and uh, my top three is identical, but it's in a different order. Mine mm -hmm. would be Presence, then Meiji, then Starlight Angel, then Deprive, then the opening and ending, then Nightmare, Franken's Gears, and finally Cloud. Like, Cloud, to me, it's the weakest segment, but it doesn't drag the whole thing down. I don't dislike Cloud. Like I said, I, I, I put it, I don't think I dislike any of the sections really, but I feel like Cloud had quite a lot to it more than, and as much as I, I enjoyed it still, I've completely lost it now. Chicken Man and Redneck. I, could, I almost forgot it. If you agree or disagree with our favorite segments, please let us know in the comments, whether it's on Facebook or SoundCloud. But I think with all of that done... I think we can finally exit the Robot Carnival and move on to what we're reviewing next. And what we're reviewing next is actually quite recent, if you consider two years ago to be recent. But mm -hmm. next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we're going to be taking a look at the 2018 comedy series Hinamatsuri, a show that features psychic girls from the future a bunch of homeless people, the Yakuza, and a deserted island. And if you think any of that doesn't make any sense, trust me, when we talk about this series, it'll all come together nicely in what I feel is one of the most criminally underrated shows of the 2010s. Awesome. Like, I, I looked forward to hearing more about it. Hopefully I'll convince you to watch it. We'll have to see. But yeah, sounds good. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. And I've been rare. And we're signing off and saying, Shut up, dumbass! Japan's in danger!